Welcome back to the fourth episode of A Life Through Books, where today I'm speaking with the poet Dr. Cecily Parks, author of the poetry collections O Nights and Field Folly Snow. Dr. Parks has work published in The New Yorker, Orion Magazine, Cutting, The Yale Review, and Best American Poetry. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very excited for our conversation. So the first question I have is, what is the first book that you remember from your childhood? This was a hard one for me, but I landed on Pat the Bunny, which I looked up in preparation for talking with you to find the author. I just knew of it as Pat the Bunny. The author is Dorothy Kennard, and it's subtitled The Touch and Feel Book, in quotes, and I just remember the total sensory experience of reading that book. And I really think I credit that book with making me someone who really loves the physical experience of reading with an actual physical book. So I don't have a Kindle. I don't have an e-reader. And I think there's something about the way that book invited reading to be something that all the senses could partake in was really important to me. And it was really interactive. It was like, Judy can pat the bunny. Now you pat the bunny. And it's so empowering. Yeah. So maybe that was like the ideal reading experience that I'll spend the rest of my life trying to chase that sensual experience. When I was researching it, I was really interested because I found that it was actually written for her daughter. And then her daughter went on to write Pat the Cat and Pat the Puppy and Pat the Pony. And I remember Pat the Puppy reading that after I read Pat the Bunny. I love those books as well. I remember the sandpaper one for Daddy's Scratchy Beard. Daddy's Beard, yes. It's all memorable. So memorable. I mean, nowadays we'd say so heteronormative, but I know we're definitely thrilled to it at the time. Yeah. Uh, It was really great. Yeah, that Scratchy Beard was genius. It was really smart. (laughs) Are there any other books that you remember from your childhood? Well, this tells you a little bit about how self-absorbed childhood can be or mine could be. <laughs> I really remember reading the Beatrix Potter book, Cecily Parsley's Nursery Rhymes. And for mm-hmm. me, I think it was the thrill of seeing my name. My name at the time was rare enough that I didn't know a lot of other Cecilies. And so seeing my name in print, meeting another Cecily felt so exciting to me, even if she was a watercolor bunny wearing an apron. <laughs> Still like a little alter ego out there or someone who had another story to tell. I never actually had heard of those until now. I read Peter Rabbit and Benjamin mm-hmm. Bunny and Flopsy Bunnies and all of those, but I never came across the nursery rhymes. I was going to ask about the name thing, though. I think it's always so exciting when you find your name in a book for the first time, and it's like, there's someone else out there who has the same name, and they're doing the same thing. I know. I'm glad you said that. I wondered if it was maybe like profound psychological narcissism, (laughs) but I do think when you're young, you're really excited by these things. And I think I still am, honestly. Definitely. I think for me, when you'd go into the souvenir shop, and the names are on the bookmarks. All my friends would have their names on those, and I never yeah. did. So, oh, same, same. Yeah. I just took my kids to one of those souvenir shops in a national park. They didn't find their name. I didn't find my name. Yeah. Their friends didn't find their names. We were all <laughs> crestfallen. Yeah. There's always a selection of about three names, which my friends yeah. happen to have, and I didn't have. And so then you find your name in a book, and it's so yeah. exciting. Yeah. What is the first book that you remember studying in school? 
So I called my dad about this one. In my recollection, it was this children's classic by Howard Pyle Mm -hmm. called Men of Iron. And it's about a young boy who wants to become a knight. And in my memory, it was assigned to me and I just could not engage with it. And I think maybe it had to do with me being a girl and wanting to read stories about girls or maybe the subject matter. Knights never really interested me. (laughs) Anyways, in my memory, my dad had to help read it to me to get me engaged with the story. I was a strong enough reader at the time, but I think what was really wonderful is that he got to share it with me. It was a story that I think he had liked as a child. Yeah. The way he describes that it was a story about endurance and goals and discipline and being rewarded for hard work. And I'm sure he probably framed it that way for me as a child. And I think maybe the reward of that very difficult book was that I got to spend time with him reading with him. So it's not as much of an academic or classroom scene when I think about the scene of reading that book. It's more like at night, my dad trying to help me through it. That's really special, though. It's always interesting how different people interpret a book. I remember my brother really enjoying books I didn't enjoy or vice Mm -hmm. versa, but we'd have to sit through each other's books. And in that sense, you see it through their eyes a little more and then you can start to catch on to what the magic of it might be. But sometimes it does take another person to have that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one that I'm glad my dad dragged me through. Yeah, (laughs) I did think I got really into it by the end. And the question of, was this kid going to become a knight? As important to me as it did to my dad when he first read it. Yeah. What is a book that you remember studying in high school or college? The one that stood out to me when I thought about this question was T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And Mm -hmm. I identify as a poet now, but for a long time, I subscribed to the idea that poetry is hard. And I avoided poetry or I thought (laughs) I wasn't smart enough to understand it. And I am so grateful to the teacher who gave me the choice. I think it was some sort of class where I had a choice whether to read Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart or The Wasteland. And I said, I'm going to read the novel because I think The Wasteland is too hard for me. Yeah. And I wasn't thinking about anything beyond genre. I just thought, oh, this novel will be easier for me. Yeah. And I remember this teacher said, no, I don't think The Wasteland will be too hard for you. I think you can read it. Yeah. And I'm really glad he said that. I'm glad I had that moment where a teacher said, I think you can do this. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Palmer, wherever you are now. (laughs) And I just remember the excitement of someone else helping me unlock a book and reading beside me or or helping me through it at a time where I felt really daunted by it. And The Wasteland, of course, is not an easy book. And for someone who thought that poetry was hard to encounter this poem that had multiple languages that I didn't understand, Sanskrit. And moved and ends without a punctuation mark. These things blew my mind when I was in high school. And it was just completely exciting. And I think it was probably the moment where I realized poetry could really be an exciting mode to write and work in. Because it seemed to be able to do so much and in a way break the rules that I had understood to be sacred. 
I've been really interested as I've spoken to different writers in this series about hearing about their experiences with teachers and books mm -hmm. that they push them to read. Because with almost everyone I've spoken to, they've mentioned this one teacher that pushed them to read something and it just changed everything. It's such an important moment in young education when teachers really can just shift the entire way that you think. Yeah, I agree. I think there's so many things that we need a little bit of incentive or exactly. accountability to yeah. read or to tackle. And then those things turn out to be some of the most rewarding or life-changing. I'm totally biased because I'm a professor, <laughs> but I do think teachers can do that for us. Is there anything else that you remember studying in that time of your life? The other book I want to mention, also a book that sort of blew my mind and it's rule-breaking was Marilyn Robinson's book, Housekeeping, which mm -hmm. was assigned to me in college. I had just never read a book like it. It seemed so focused on women's lives in a way mm -hmm. that I had only all seen to date in Toni Morrison's novels. But the idea that these alternative matriarchies were possible was really exciting to me yeah. in that book. And it also was set in the American West, which is a place that I've thought about and write, written about quite a bit and was mm -hmm. already interested in. But yeah. I wasn't used to reading stories that centered women's experiences in the American West. So many of the stories were a man goes out trapping and hunting <laughs> or a man goes mountain climbing or it was yeah. just the masculine tradition of nature writing and Western exploration hadn't made space for these stories. And this book yeah. made a really interesting space for that kind of story. And I remembered, it seemed like a novel of ideas as well as a novel of women's lives. And I read somewhere that Marilyn Robinson, when she was writing it, told herself she was writing something that could never sell. Yeah. And I loved that when I learned about it, because it did strike me as something that I had never seen before when I first wow. wrote it. It's about two girls who grow up under their grandmother and then their aunts and great aunts, right? So it's all women in the family. Yeah. yeah. And um, there's this really interesting character, Sylvie, who comes to take care of the two orphaned girls. Right. She always seems like she's about to run away. She right. never takes off her coat. She leaves the house without telling people where she's going. And I loved her. She was such an edgy, interesting character. <laughs> What is a book that you read at a formative time in your life? I think about this book all the time. It's been so long since I've read it, but I recommend it all the time. Mm -hmm. It's the book Endurance by Alfred Lansing about Ernest Shackleton. I read it at a time when I was really interested in outdoor adventure. I had taken mm -hmm. a gap year. I had done a semester where I went mountain climbing and I had been in places that felt really forbidding. And I was interested in how you have to make decisions in those spaces. Yeah. I think reading that book of this explorer and this expedition where no man died, although a friend of mine pointed out that they did have to kill the dogs and eat them. So that's a sad fact. <laughs> but the, they got trapped in the ice in the South Pole and... Shackleton made these amazing decisions to keep people relatively sane and safe. And I just thought it was so riveting with real life decision making. I was interested in leadership too and and what leaders did in extreme situations. Yeah, I remember 
learning about him in elementary school, but I never actually knew that this book existed. And the thing I remember from learning about him was that he returned on another expedition a few years later, and he ends up dying of a heart attack in the place where they first found land afterwards. And we were all blown away by this fact because he went back to the place where he thought he would have died and then he actually died. And I think we were just so young. It's when you're first learning about life and death and the fact that he went back to this place and died. I just remember it was the talk of the cafeteria (laughs) that day. And it probably wasn't what they wanted us to take away from his story. But it's so funny to think about now. I had not thought about that in years until you mentioned the book. I loved that. I mean, that's so poetic. And of course, (laughs) I'm interested in it right now. I'm like, oh my God. I knew he was buried at South Georgia. It's a tiny speck in the middle of the Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, being where I am in life now, I'm like, gosh, his wife and kids are like, oh, really? You're going to do this again? I think I must be interested in obsession, too, because this guy clearly was obsessed. It's just amazing he did go back. Yeah. And I think we could all go to his grave if we cared to travel to the South Georgia Island. I think we're just fascinated by the idea of him returning home, basically. Yeah. For his dad. Yeah. What is a book that you credit for shaping your way of thinking, your style of writing, or your general outlook? That is such a good question. I think that the answer to that is not going to be a single text or a single title. I think it's more I encounter books at certain times in my life that just really speak to me and feel exciting in the moment. And they push my thinking forward. But I thought having a book change my life was something that could only happen to me when I was young. But I did read the book Ninth Street Women a few years ago, which is about the women artists of the abstract expressionist movement in New York City. And I remember thinking when I finished it, I thought I was too old to have a book change my life. But this one was remarkable. And I think it did change my life. What I took from it was that there was a lot to be learned from the choices that women artists a couple of generations before me made. I think in a way I I had taken it for granted that I could be a mother and an artist too, or be more than one thing. And their stories presented me with the idea or the discovery that choices may have been harder for women artists in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. And the choices they made were really remarkable and the art they made was just devastatingly beautiful. And some Mm -hmm. of my favorite painters among them, especially Helen Frankenthaler. Yeah. And so just reading about their lives, I found to be totally riveting and for me underexplored until then. I think that is very true that we're almost subconsciously taught that things can only change our perspective when we're children because we're young and malleable. But actually, any piece of writing could change your life or your perspective at any time. It's just Mm -hmm. a matter of stumbling across it and how you interpret it. I think so. And being open to reading outside your comfort zone. Are there any other books or pieces of writing that you would put under that category? Well, almost all the poems I read when I was first starting to write poetry, too many for me to categorize or name, but (laughs) it was this exciting time where every poem I read seemed to present me with a new way of writing or a new way of thinking about poetry. Yeah, And because I had 
kept poetry at bay for so long, assuming that it was too hard for me. When I started to read it in earnest, as someone hungry for models, every single poem seemed so exciting. But if I had to pick one book, it was Jory Graham's second book, Erosion, that I read and I was just mind blown. I I thought she was so amazing um, trying to think on the page and um, subordinate certain kind of stylistic conventions or even expectations that readers might have had for poetry to these deep questions that she was trying to explore on the page. And that was very exciting to me. What are your favorite books that you've read with your children? I have many. I have loved reading to my children. It has been one of my favorite things. And sadly, as they get older, opportunities to read to them are diminishing. They're not that interested in me reading to them. But I fell in love with the Chiri and Chira picture book series by the Japanese author and artist Kaya Doi, Mm -hmm. D-O-I. And I just love them. They're so beautiful. They present two children. And because I have twin daughters, I read them as twin sisters. But that's me. No one has ever told me (laughs) how they relate or who they are. And they travel by bicycle in every book. And they are always having adventures in a different natural environment. There's one where they go into the tall grass. There's one where they go underground. One where they explore the night. So I love the privileging of the natural world. I love the illustrations. I love the way they have adventures with animals and plants. And sometimes their adventures let them eat different flowers or confections made of snow. They're always having interactions with the natural world. So they have a chance to participate in the community. That's Yeah, They're so beautiful. It's always interesting when you talk about it that way, you realize what they're trying to teach kids through the writing of a book. But when you're actually reading the story, I certainly as a kid often did not realize what a book was actually teaching me. And then you think back on it a few years later and you're like, wow, that's where I learned that I should pick up my trash or look out for other people or share. And it's really beautiful how kids' books can teach that lesson so smoothly. It's so underlying. It's not in your face. But Yeah, and so many children's books do privilege the natural world and animals and as animals speak in so many of these books. So I think there is this lesson about care embedded yeah. in them. What was your children's book um, that you remember really loving? That is a difficult one, but there was one called Some Dogs Do. And it was about this dog who just defied all expectations. And I was just so amazed because when I was growing up, I was best friends with my dog. And I would just be looking at him at the end of the bed as this book was being read to me. And I was like, wow, he does all of these things when I'm not home. And that's so cool. I just loved any dog related books growing up. I think anything that had a dog on the front, I was immediately going to read. Are there any other favorite books that you've read with your kids? I've loved also this illustrated poetry book that was recently published called Beastly Verse. Mm -hmm. And the illustrator is Ju Hee Yoon. 
And it's just beautiful illustrations, really charismatic, dynamic illustrations Mm -hmm. and poems that rhyme in almost all the cases, but they're older poems. So I don't think I'd have a chance of sharing with my daughters if not Mm -hmm. for the dynamic illustrations that sort of draw them in. And I love these poems, just beautiful, weird, animal-based poems. That's why it's called Beastly Verse. They're all about beasts. But I have loved reading that to the girls. And I used to ask for it when they were little, not so much anymore. But I think they like being lulled. What is the most recent book that you read or what are you currently reading? A recent book that I read and loved uh, was Louisa Hall's novel, Reproduction. It just came out this summer and it is about a woman who is trying to write about Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And then she ends up writing a version of Frankenstein herself instead with only women characters. Wow. And embedded in the story is experience with pregnancy loss and miscarriage and just motherhood in general. Mm-hmm. And I loved it because I got to learn a lot about Mary Shelley while reading a totally modern novel. And yeah. it blew my mind the way the novel had a plot that surprised me at every turn and just felt really daring as well as being totally compelling and readable. I think I read it in like two settings. Two. So that I loved, Reproduction by Louisa Hall. Amazing. And then I have a book that I just got sent that I'm really excited to read. Oh, yeah. It's called How to Be Multiple. Okay. The Philosophy of Twins is the subtitle. Wow. It's by a philosopher who I believe is herself an identical twin. Okay. And as a mother of twins, I'm sort of interested in the thinking about twinship, twinhood. Yeah. So I'm really excited to read that. That's next up for me. Yeah, that's very exciting. I, I did look her up and it mentioned that her twin did the drawings and illustrations in it and she wrote it, which I yes. think is so interesting. And yeah, you'll probably learn a lot from that. I um, can't wait. I should say the author's name is Helena Debray. How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. I can't wait. And I love the collaborative nature of the sisters in the book. Have you read a lot of books about twins? When my girls were born, I did. And then I found myself noticing twins in literature. I mean, twins are kind of amazing characters or plot devices. In Shakespeare, you'll find them sort of metaphors for the lost self. Yeah. I've heard or the lost family member turns out to be like you in yeah. a way like you you find yourself in a family and you realize oh wait that's me no that's my yeah. twin it's a magical way of reconciling loneliness to have a twin yeah. in a novel so yeah I, I noticed them in books it's funny though my daughters roll their eyes when they encounter twins <laughs> in books now they're like oh really a twin <laughs> I think now I'm more interested and in, and would hope to write about one day twin motherhood and think about what I do know because I don't know really what it's like to have a twin but I I, yeah. I do know what it feels like to be a mother of twins and what it's felt like to talk about my daughters with other people who have questions about them um, and just to figure out how to help them be themselves and twins. What is the general sort of time period that you tend to read works written from, or is there not a specific time period? 
I read anything and everything. I do try to read just sort of all over the place. I'm an omnivore. (laughs) I think oftentimes I enjoy contemporary work because Mm. it feels exciting to know what's being written right now. But I don't stick in one time period for long. Mm -hmm. I love to read historical work. I think where I'm probably weakest is work in translation. Mm. I would I would like to read more work in translation across yeah. time periods. That's a really good answer. What is a piece of writing that you think everyone should read? The piece of writing I think everyone should read is the novel The Last Samurai mm-hmm. by Helen DeWitt. I love, love, loved that book when I first read it. I recommend yeah. it to everybody. I think it perhaps got swallowed up a bit when it first came out and then had something of a resurgence more recently. It may have even been reissued. I guess my theme is I'm interested in formally daring work. And Mm -hmm. at the time, it felt really formally daring, including I remember the narrator switches halfway through the book in a way Mm -hmm. that I had never seen before. And then the plot itself was really exciting and smart and inventive. There's a woman who has a son who's obviously very gifted. And I believe she's a classics professor or scholar. And the search in the book becomes the search for her son's father. The biological father is a person that they can discover and could even claim as her son's father. But she and her son decide to choose someone else searching in a way for other people who could, who could serve as a father. And so they build a family out of a kind of affinity rather than blood relation and focus on the possibility that you can choose your family in this really imaginative way. That's really interesting. I will definitely have to add that to my reading list. What is a favorite book that a friend recommended to you? I have two. Perfect. It was the same friend. My friend, who's the author, Catherine Chung, sent me both of these at the same time. (laughs) One was Tuva Johnson's The Summer Book. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't read The Adventures of Moomin or the books about Moominland that this author wrote. But The Summer Book is about a granddaughter and a daughter on an island one summer. Mm-hmm. And the young girl's mother is is absent. And mm-hmm. the question of her absence starts to loom larger and larger as they occupy themselves on this very idyllic remote island off the coast of Finland. Again, <laughs> as plots go, this is not super traditional. There's not an obvious conflict or obvious tension leading to an obvious dramatic moment but the absence it starts to become a character in the book in england moomin is super popular it's (gasps) on every street i have all the moomin books we have moomin mugs and pillows and thermoses it's huge so when i saw that she'd written something else besides all the moomin land books i was like whoa i didn't even know there was a whole other side to her so that's really interesting because I think the only reason I've grown up with Moomin is because we lived in England when I was younger as well. And so mm-hmm. I must have picked it up then. And then we searched for it wherever we could when we were back in the States. But I don't think it's as big here, which is so sad. I mean, our girls didn't read it. I didn't grow yeah. up reading it. 
And so I read her now for her novels for adults, but I think she's best known for Moomin. And then the other book, which was recently made into a movie, is um, Miriam Taves' novel, Women Talking, which just blew my mind. Reading it was so tense. Yeah. And I loved it, but I haven't seen the movie yet. I think the reading the book made me so tense that I have to gear up yeah. to watch a movie that I think will also make me very tense. I saw a clip of the movie the other day. I think it's also a line from the book where the landlord comes in and he asks the women if they're going to try and burn the barn down. And then they go, no, Ernie, there's no plot. We're just women talking. And I've seen that clip everywhere. Um, So I was really interested that you'd mentioned it. Obviously a very gut-wrenching book to read, but a very important one too. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting quote. It ties back to housekeeping, the book I mentioned earlier about women, women's lives and women creating sort of unconventional homes. Yeah. And they do burn down their house at the end of the Spoiler. But I love it. It's sort of a a refusal to be domesticated. And burning down the house is so symbolic for a woman. Absolutely. What is a favorite series that you've read? You're going to have to tell me if this is as big in England as it was when I was in England. I lived there in middle school. Really? In London, yeah. And I discovered the Arthur Ransom series, Swallows and Amazons. I was obsessed. In my recollection, it was kids having adventures on boats over and over and over again. It was always like a small mystery component. Yeah. But I just loved the adventure component of it and the outdoorsiness. They were always camping out and making do. And I'm not a boating person, but I found it totally fascinating. All the technical aspects of using the boats. Yeah, I have not gotten my daughters to read it yet, but that was a series I absolutely loved as a child. I've definitely heard of my friends reading it. I haven't read it because I think we must have been in the States at the stage that I would have gotten into that. But I did read Famous Five, all the Famous Five books by Ina Blyton, which I think are kind of a similar thing to that. Very outdoorsy, lots of adventure, and there's always a mystery or an issue to be solved. And they're always on a boat as well. There's definitely something fascinating about that, about running away from home and being out in the wild and fending for yourself. I'm actually volunteering at the public library in the town where we live in England for the summer. And my job is helping with the summer reading program. And I just kind of listen to all the books that the kids read and they love the famous five books. And I think there's really something fascinating about not having parents or someone in control And I've just noticed this pattern where when you ask them, what's your favorite part about it? Or who's your favorite character? It's like, so-and-so because she does all of this without her parents and she's surviving in the ocean and something like that. It's really interesting to think about. Yeah, I think it took me until I was a parent to notice how many orphans there are in children's literature. Or dead moms or dead dads. It just forces like a kind of independence on a child really early on. And it's a great plot point for kids. I think yeah. before kids get too troubled about the idea of losing the person yeah. who cares for them, it's it, it does present itself as totally exciting <laughs> and Absolutely. a great adventure. Yeah, exactly. What is your go-to book to give as a gift to friends? It's Stiran Negriafa's okay. A Ghost in the Throat. I just thought it was an amazing 
model of memoir and poetry scholarship. It's about an Irish contemporary woman poet searching for an 18th century Irish woman poet and translating her epic poem in the process. So it's blended literary history, personal history, poetry in a way that I found totally captivating. I read online that it was described as being written on the roof of a multi-story car park in Ireland, which I thought was just such an interesting image. Someone writing such a fascinating book about history in a car park. Oh, I didn't know that story. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, I was just very intrigued by that. What is your go-to book that you gift when a baby is born? Lately, that has been Little Owl's Night Mm -hmm. by Divya She actually lives here in Austin, Texas, where I live. Little Owl has a lot of books, but that one is just a really magical one. And the illustrations just are so satisfying and baby-friendly, too. Yeah, absolutely. I remember reading Little Owl's Day, but I didn't know that Little Owl had a night as well. I remember the illustrations just being so complete and wholesome and satisfying visually. She's just mastered digital, but warm. All the little creatures look so cute. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I love Little Owl. Absolutely. What is your favorite genre of writing? Well, I have to say poetry because I'm a poet, but I also really like creative nonfiction. I like the way people are using the creative nonfiction genre to explore different ways of knowing and imagining different ways of interacting with history through creative nonfiction. Who is your favorite writer of all time? It's so (laughs) difficult. It changes all the time. And maybe this is a cheat. Mine is probably Shakespeare. It's so satisfying about Shakespeare. Yeah. Plays and poems have never let me down. Absolutely. There's always something new to be found in the world Mm -hmm. of Shakespeare, I think. Do you listen to audiobooks? Yes. I love listening to audiobooks when I'm running. Sometimes in the car too, but I like to have a little bit more focus in the car when I'm driving. Yeah. But running, I feel like I can be a bit more autopilot. There's a trail I like to run on, so I don't have to worry about traffic. Yeah. And I am currently listening to Lose Your Mother by Sadia Hartman, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing work of creative nonfiction and thinking about the repercussions of the slave trade. I have never thought about listening to a book on a run. I don't know why I haven't thought of that because I'll listen to podcasts. An audiobook is kind of the same thing. I think having a story would distract me from the fact that I'm actually running. So that would probably be good. Yeah, I think that's definitely why I'm doing it. I don't want to, but I get to listen to my book. So I do want to. And then if whatever is going on in your book can seem more tension filled than the fatigue in your muscles, it's great. Exactly. How many pages do you give a book if you're not enjoying it? That is such an interesting question. I love this question because Mm -hmm. I think in the past, when I was younger, if I started a book, I was going to finish that book no matter what. Yeah. And as I got older, I realized I'm not going to live forever. I can't read every (laughs) book. And I had to figure out when to give books up. Uh, This is not scientific, and I rarely give up on a book, but I would say it can be five pages or it can be 150 pages, and it just kind of depends on my mood at the time. And there have been plenty of books that I've started put down, 
and returned to later and read. And I think sometimes a book finds you at the right time for you to read it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you find a book and it's not the right time for you to read it for whatever reason. And so I comfort myself with the fact that the book is there at the library waiting for me to return to it if I need to. I like that idea of finding it again at a different time and not just Mm -hmm. completely disregarding it. But I'm definitely still in the stage where I force myself to finish most books. And most of the time I know from a certain point that I'm not going to enjoy it regardless, but I convince myself that the ending is going to suddenly interest me. And it usually doesn't, but hopefully at a certain point I'll (laughs) figure out where the sweet spot is for stopping with the book. But that rarely happens anyways. So I think I was emboldened to put down books when I read an interview with Elisa Lucas, who's an editor at Pantheon. Yeah. And she remembered being such a martyr. That was her word. Finishing a book because she had started it. Yeah. And then realizing she didn't have to do it. And I was yeah. like, oh, she's right. So I, I think I was emboldened to do it then. Yeah. Maybe I need to read that and then <laughs> I'll feel powerful enough to do it. Is there such a thing as a book that's too long, in your opinion? I think no, no. Um, I would hate to to think of a book that's too long. But admittedly, I do make note of how fat a book looks before committing to it. And again, maybe that's a timing thing. Like, do I have time for a 1,000-page book? That's a question I ask before picking up the (laughs) 1,000-page book. (laughs) Definitely. I think that's a very good answer. Do you have a favorite movie that's based on a book? I think I'm going to date myself with this one, but I loved the movie A River Runs Through It. I had grown up fly fishing and I thought of it as nerdy and not very (laughs) exciting and not very glitzy. I thought of it as a weird thing my family did in upstate New York. Yeah. And so when I saw the movie a river runs through it i was kind of amazed i mean obviously it was the hollywood version of fly fishing but then the movie led me to the book um which is a very beautiful book yeah i haven't watched a river runs through it, but i've heard about 500 times that i should watch it so i will definitely add that to my watching list, as well as my you reading can tell me how it's aged you tell me if it's aged well or not it's not brad pitt in it right Between young brad pitt Yeah, exactly. I think I could spare some time to watch that. (laughs) Do you have a poem or a piece of writing that you would want to be read at a special occasion in your life? Yeah. Poetry really shines at special occasions. As a poet, I am often asked to recommend a poem for someone's wedding or someone's funeral or momentous life occasions really send people to poetry, which I love. I think we saw that a little bit with the pandemic too. I think people's reading capacities changed and maybe poetry offered something that felt like a calm, peaceful space to read and and not having to commit to anything too big and to kind of be still with a person's thoughts, with your own thoughts. Yeah. Anyway, when people ask me like, oh, do you think poetry is a thing of the past or it's on its way out. I I make note of the fact that special occasions are the places where poetry still shines and people still want it for them. Yeah. So the poem that came to mind 
for me was the poem by Dylan Thomas called Fern Hill. And I think someone could read that at my funeral and I'd be really yeah. happy. Yeah. Although I, I wouldn't be there or alive <laughs> to know it. What's its general message? I read it as an older person looking back on a pastoral childhood and remembering a sense of intimacy with nature and weather and feeling enlivened, intimate, participatory in that world. Yeah. And by the end, recognizing that in the midst of all that joy and participation, he was also growing older, which is another way of dying and yeah. losing that intimacy over time. And it ends with one of my favorite phrases. So I sang in my chains like the sea. And I'm not going to try to explain it. It just gives me the yeah. chills. So yeah. to me, it, it, it's a celebration of a life in a natural world or a place of natural beauty. And then the slow dawning wisdom of how he's growing older and, and sort of already leaving a beautiful yeah. world. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's such a beautiful thing to end on. So that me is too. my questions. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. This was a total pleasure. I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk about books with you. You can find lists of Cecily's writing on poets.org and her contact details on the Texas State University website, where she is an associate professor in English. Please don't forget to support your local bookshops where you can. Mm-hmm.